Reformation Day was a day that I was unaware of for most of my life. For, for well, time flies, for, for over half of my life. <laughs> I guess that would be most. It was a day I was unaware of. It was certainly a day I didn't celebrate. But Halloween, I knew from the time I can remember, by the time I was walking, I can still remember my plastic pumpkin uh, that I used to carry around and collect all my candy in. No one ever told me that Halloween uh, was about anything other than ghosts and goblins and spooky things and candy. But today being Reformation Day, I want to talk to you about that because I think it's important for us to do that because we are all, the fact that you're here today means you are a product of the Reformation whether you realize it or not. So on this day, in 1517, I think that's so cool, that's our address, 1517 McLean. In 1517, 504 years ago, a Catholic monk named Martin Luther nailed 95 points for debate on the door of All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany. And these points of debate are called Martin Luther's 95 Thesis. Benjamin knew that. And he's not even in my history class. This is considered the beginning of the Reformation. Luther's unyielding stand for the authority of Scripture and truth led to what we have come to know as the Protestant Reformation. Luther's bold stand inspired others, men like Calvin, Zwingli, Knox. They embraced the same truths and the Reformation spread. As Protestants, we are products of the Reformation. The Reformation was not perfect. In fact, it brought much loss of life and there were even atrocities committed in the name of God as has been throughout history because God is good but men are sinful and this is why man needs a savior. But, though not perfect, the Reformation was powerfully transforming for good in more ways than we know and we still reap great blessing because of it today. In 1567 is when they began to officially observe and celebrate what we call or know as today Reformation Day. So when Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis, it was not Reformation Day because the Reformation hadn't happened yet. It was All Saints Eve. October 31st was All Saints Eve or All Hallows Eve or in Scotland they would have said All Hallows Even. And it just got shortened to Halloween. All Halloween or Halloween. That's how we got the word Halloween. Luther found a verse in the scripture, I'm going to read it to you, that changed his life. He had an epiphany. He had a revelation that Luther said in that moment he was born again. He had eyes to see the truth of the scripture, the truth of the gospel. It's Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And verse 17 is the verse that God used to bring a revelation to Luther that resulted in what we know as the Reformation. For in it, in the gospel, is the righteousness of God... For in it the righteousness of God is revealed 
from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for this good news that it is faith alone that saves us in Christ alone, by your grace alone. And you have revealed these truths in your word, the Holy Bible. And scripture alone is our final authority for all things. Father, I ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, open our hearts and open our minds Reveal yourself to us today. Reveal these truths to us today. And help us better understand our heritage and how we have come to be in the very place and be the very people we are today in your eternal plan and purpose. And by your grace, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So one day Martin Luther read uh, this verse and had this epiphany. And he realized that we are not saved because we are made righteous or because we become righteous. We are saved because God counts us as righteous. There's a big difference. And he counts us as righteous by grace through faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have no righteousness in ourselves. You're not born with one iota of righteousness. There's not a very tiny spark of righteousness waiting to be awakened in you. There is nothing in us. We are born dead in sin. We are darkness, the Bible says. It doesn't say you're like darkness. It says you are darkness until what? Until we are made light in the Lord. Now, you and I can turn the uh, lights on in this building if it's dark, but only because there's already electricity here. But only God can cause darkness to become light. Righteousness doesn't come from us. It does not reside in us. It is not produced or infused in us by sacraments or good works. That's what the Roman church, the Roman Catholic church teaches. It's what Luther was taught. And he had to work harder to become more righteous and to become more acceptable to God. Righteousness is imputed to us. In Christ we are counted as righteous. We are regarded as righteous by the Father because of faith in the Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the righteous one. It's our faith in the one who is righteous. That's why God counts us as righteous. It is by faith alone we are justified. That's what Luther saw in the scripture. And though he was not the first to realize this, God used Martin Luther to start a movement of reform that would change the church and change the world. The impact of the Reformation across continents and across centuries is more significant than many people in our modern era realize. It is largely ignored. In fact, it's not just ignored, it is seen as something that's evil now. Because it was from the Reformation that the Western expanse and the quest to take the gospel to the far reaches of the world was born. And today, that is considered evil by our culture. 
Because what right do we have to go tell other indigenous people that they should believe in Jesus? We just need to let them alone and let them have their own gods and their own religion. The only problem with that is Jesus Christ commands his people to take the gospel to the nations and to make disciples. In fact, the Bible says, Jesus said, disciple the nations. Why? Because they're darkness, they're in sin, and their destiny apart from Jesus is eternal damnation. So the most loving thing we can do is to actually tell people who don't know Jesus, who don't have Jesus, that there is hope and there is salvation. But that salvation and that hope is in Jesus alone. All of this has come out of the Reformation. The Reformation has made the gospel accessible to countless millions across the globe for the last five centuries. It has shaped the world in powerful ways. Many freedoms and many blessings we enjoy every day are in no small part due to the Reformation. The gospel continues to powerfully transform us and the world. We need to believe this as Christians, as followers of Christ. So why a Reformation? Reformation is defined as the act of reforming or the state of being reformed. To reform something means to improve by removing or correcting faults. Luther's plan was to create a dialogue or a debate. A debate of the issues in the hope that it would encourage change and restore biblical truth to the Roman church. Luther's intent was to never leave the church or to start a new church, he just wanted to have a conversation. Luther never envisioned the scale of reformation that actually happened, but he embraced it absolutely. God always has a plan above what we are able to ask or think. He did then in Luther's day, and I want you to have hope and know that he does in our day, he does right now, today, have a plan that's greater than what we can ask or think. Don't believe the lie Believe the truth. Believe what God has said. The Reformation was not the start of something new. It was a return to something old. It was a return to the truth. It was a return to the scripture. A return to the gospel. A return to biblical Christianity. The things that we're going to talk about today weren't invented in the Reformation. They were rediscovered during the Reformation. It was a returning of the church to its proper foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Paul writes that in Ephesians 2.20. Luther came to see the doctrine of justification by faith in the scripture. God had opened his eyes to the truth of the gospel, and Luther realized that biblical truths had long been overshadowed and buried by man's tradition, papal decrees, and the politics of the Roman church. Luther purposed to make known the truths taught in Scripture in hopes the discussions would result in a rehabilitation of the church and its doctrine. So, on October 31st, in 1517, Luther posted his 95 Theses on the door of Wittenberg Castle or All Saints Church. It was All Saints or All Hallows Eve. And Luther chose that day on purpose because the Roman church, the Pope, was sending a large collection of relics to Wittenberg that year. You know what relics are? 
So I, I went to a church, I think, it was a, I think it was the church in Santa Fe, I think in Santa Fe, uh, one of the churches supposedly has part of the little finger of St. Francis, I think, is that correct, Dave? That's a relic. And so they've got part of a finger bone that supposedly belonged to St. Francis, and you can go and you can see that behind the glass and you, you can pray. You can ask St. Francis to bless you, and you can see that relic, and those relics were considered holy by the Roman church. Well, the Pope was sending this large collection of relics to Wittenberg that year. The people would be able to bow and genuflect before relics deemed holy by Rome, and they could purchase indulgences. Do you know what an indulgence? This was Luther's big problem. Luther wrote his 95 Thesis because he saw that this scheme of indulgences was, he believed, a manipulation of the people. And when he realized from the Scripture that we're justified by faith, we don't buy our salvation, we don't buy time uh, in heaven or shorten our time in purgatory by buying indulgences. And an indulgence was literally a document signed by the Pope or its representative that said in writing that basically you get so many years taken off your time in purgatory. And the people because they could not speak Latin, and because they could not read Latin. This is in Germany. The only people that were literate that could speak or read Latin were the priesthood, were the aristocracy, who, the people that were fortunate enough to get an education. And if you were a priest, a monk, a friar in the Roman Catholic Church, you were educated. And so, in fact, Luther posted his 95 Thesis in Latin because it wasn't for the common people. It was for the other clergy to look at and to, to discuss. But all of this, all of this belief, this belief in removing decades or centuries of time from their time in purgatory or for their loved ones who have gone on to the afterlife, uh, all of that was seen by Luther as unbiblical, and it is. There was a man by the name of John Tietzel. He was a Dominican friar appointed by the Pope to lead the marketing campaign for Rome. And his slogan to promote the sale of indulgences literally became a popular jingle used in his travels across Europe. It was considered one of the first, if not the first, marketing jingle. It's still talked about if you take marketing classes and they'll tell you the first marketing jingle was coined in the, in the, in the Middle Ages. And this was Tietzel's jingle that he came up with. Teachel coined the phrase, as soon as a coin and coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And so people who didn't have a Bible to read, people who had never read a Bible, they only listened to the priest speak in Latin during Mass. They had no idea what the Scripture said because they couldn't read the Scriptures because it was against the law to translate the Scriptures into the common language. And so all they believed is what the church told them they must believe. And they believed sincerely that the only way to get their loved ones out of purgatory was to pray harder. And well, now you can pay more. And you can pay to have your loved ones actually removed from purgatory. Luther knew indulgences were sold to raise money. He knew the truth. He knew that the indulgences, the money went to two things. It went to pay off the debt of the archbishop and it went to building projects at the Vatican. St. Peter's Cathedral was built with money raised by indulgences. To say that Luther was disturbed by all such non-biblical spectacles is a vast understatement. He was righteously 
furious with Rome, with the Roman church and its leaders who promoted such unbiblical teachings and used them to manipulate an unsuspecting people. And this is why Luther posted his 95 Thesis on All Hallows' Eve, because the next day was All Saints' Day, and that's when the big display of relics was going to be there, and Tietzel would be there, and they would have this big marketing campaign to get people to pay money to fund debt relief and building projects at the Vatican. But the people were giving the money because they truly believed that it was getting their loved ones out of purgatory or getting them and their time shortened in purgatory. So Luther posts this 95 thesis on the castle door. It was the, the castle door was the town bulletin board. And he wrote it in Latin because it was only meant for priests. He just wanted to have a debate, a discussion amongst the clergy. But guess what? There were other people in town who could read Latin. And they went to the bulletin board and they began to read what Luther wrote there. And somebody took his 95 thesis. You know what happened? The newly created printing press... They took that, they translated his 95 Thesis into German, they printed it on, on, on Gutenberg's printing press, and they began to spread it all across Germany. As a result, word spread, and the people, along with Luther, became righteously angry over the abuses of the church. The Reformation marked the beginning of a concerted effort to rehabilitate the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church and return the church to its biblical roots. Rome rejected the attempt. They did not want to talk about these issues. And instead of rehabilitation, there would be a reformation. It was never Luther's intent, but it was God's plan. The reformation resulted in the establishment of what is commonly called the Protestant movement. Protestant means protesters. The desire to rehabilitate the Roman church turned into a full-blown reformation or literal reformation of the church. Luther and others understood this did not begin with them but had been growing over the centuries. Before Luther, men like John Wycliffe and Jan Hus, or what we would say John Huss, Wycliffe wanted to translate the Bible into English for the English people in England. And before the church could execute him, he died of a stroke. But don't worry, they dug up his dead body and they burned it to ashes and they sprinkled the ashes in the river to make sure everybody knew not to be a heretic like Wycliffe. But there was this Bohemian guy, Jan Hus, who got a hold of Wycliffe's writings and began to read them. And he came to understand the truths of the gospel. And 100 years before Luther posted his thesis on the door, Jan Hus was burned at the stake because he had translated the gospel and teachings of Wycliffe into Bohemian and was teaching the Bohemian people the gospel and what the scripture actually said and was translating the Bible into the common language. And the church said, we can't have this. This is heretical. So they took Hus and they burned him at the stake. And when Luther did what he did, Luther understood very clearly what he was risking. That he was risking his life. But he knew 
that he had to stand for the truth, even if it did cost his life. So like others before him, Luther and other reformer priests were excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church. But they were committed to preaching and teaching a theology that was conformed to Scripture alone. And the differences with Luther was that word had spread with the invention of the printing press. Word spread all over Germany and Luther became so popular and there was such an outrage against the Roman church when people began to understand what was happening. The leaders of that day could not openly kill Luther because they were afraid that it would result in a revolt. Well, the revolt came anyways. Luther was never executed. He continued writing. He continued preaching. He continued teaching. Luther and others like him committed to teaching and preaching the Scripture and the Gospel of Christ in their churches. In existing and new churches, the truths of Scripture were being preached and taught in the common language of the people. Luther spent a year in a castle hid out for his life because he knew they wouldn't do it openly, but, he, but the belief was they would send assassins to kill him. And while he was hid out in secret for that year, he translated the entire New Testament into German for the German people. And then it was printed. And then it was spread. And people, for the very first time, think about it, for the very first time, the people of Germany, the people of that region, for the very first time, the common people were able to actually read the Word of God. They had never read it before. They'd only heard it spoken in Latin and they had no idea what was being said. And they trusted their leaders that what they're telling them to do is what they should do. But then they got the Bible for themselves and they began to see the truth. And it spread. And the Reformation happened. The Reformation was a movement to recapture the truths of biblical Christianity. It set in motion world-changing forces and events that continue to shape history today. Luther had three main points that drove his desire for reform. They are, one, salvation by faith alone. Number two, Scripture as the only authority, the final authority, and number three was the priesthood of all believers. These three core beliefs rooted and grounded in Scripture were central to Luther's, to Luther's teaching and his efforts to bring change to the doctrines and the practice of the Roman church. These three key points fueled the Reformation. And from these three key points that fueled the Reformation, we have what we come to know today as the five solas of of the Reformation. The five, what we call the five solas, didn't come about until much later. Um, they didn't come from Luther, they didn't come from Calvin or the early reformers. But it was the teachings of Luther. It was the teachings of men like Wycliffe and Huss. And then Luther took those teachings from the Scripture. And then uh, men like Calvin and Zwingli and, and John Knox took those truths from the scripture and the reformation grew and spread and we have what we call today the five solas of the reformation also known as the five pillars of the reformation and they are these they're called the five solas or the five alones the five onlys scripture alone sola scriptura the scripture 
is the sole source of written divine revelation. The Bible teaches all that is necessary for salvation from sin. Scripture is the standard and final arbiter for all matters concerning the Christian life and behavior. No creed, no council, no papal decree, no papal bull, no individual may bind a Christian's conscience beyond what is already revealed in the Word of God. The Holy Spirit will never speak independently of or contrary to what is already set forth in God's Holy Word. No personal spiritual experience can ever be a vehicle of revelation beyond what God has already revealed to us in His Word. The second is grace alone. Sola gratia. Salvation is by God's grace alone, period. That's it. We are rescued from God's wrath only by God's grace. It is the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that brings us to Christ by releasing us from our bondage to sin and raising us from spiritual death to spiritual life. Salvation is in no sense, in no way, a human work. Somebody said to me once, you carry God's sovereignty too far. You have to believe. I said, you don't believe believing is a work? No, it's not a work. You don't think believing in Christ is a good work? Nope, it's not. Okay. How do you believe? Well, we can all believe. We just have to choose to. Nope. Grace gives you the willingness and the desire to trust in Jesus. You're not born with that. That is a gift given to you by the grace of God. Even our ability to believe, and we do believe, and we do choose because God in His grace chose us and gives us the power, the grace to believe in Him. It is by grace alone that we are saved. No human methods, no techniques, no strategies. Faith is not produced by our, by our unregenerate nature. Faith is the gift of God. It is the gift of God's grace. Faith alone. Sola fide. Justification is by faith alone. Not faith plus works. Not faith plus prayers. Not faith plus indulgences. Not faith plus anything. Faith alone is what justifies us before God. It is Christ's righteousness, His own righteousness, that is imputed to us. We are counted righteous in Christ. And that is what makes possible the satisfaction of God's perfect justice. Our justification does not rest on any merit to be found in us. It is not of works. There is not an infusion of Christ's righteousness in us. But we are counted, regarded righteous by the Father because of our faith. In Jesus Christ. Christ alone. Solus Christus. Christ alone is the Savior. Christ is not one of many ways. He's not one of few ways. He's not one of two ways. He alone is the source of our salvation. Our salvation is accomplished only by His mediating work on our behalf. His sinless life and substitutionary atonement alone are sufficient for our justification and reconciliation to the Father. 
We're not trusting in us, we're trusting in Him, in Christ alone. And the gospel is not preached. If faith in Christ is not preached, if, if the substitutionary work of Christ is not preached, if sin and salvation is not preached, there is no gospel preached. The fifth is glory to God alone. Solo de gloria. Because salvation is of God and has been accomplished by God, it is to God alone that the, that the glory belongs. We will never be able to boast before God of what we have done. And if we do not perfectly understand that now, I submit to you that when you stand before the Lord one day, you will realize that there is not anything we have ever done that we can take credit for, that we can receive glory for. I'm not saying God doesn't work through His people and God doesn't move through His people and God doesn't use His people. He does. But it is the grace of God and all of the glory goes to God. This is why the picture is given to us in the book of Revelation that the 24 elders are casting their golden crowns at the feet of Jesus. They realize whatever crowns they received from Christ based on their works in this life, all glory, all honor goes back to Jesus. To God alone be the glory. And we cannot properly glorify God if our worship is confused with entertainment or if our preaching neglects either law or gospel. The good news is not good news if we don't know the bad news. And the bad news is we're dead in sin and we need a Savior. The good news is there is a Savior and there is hope, even life from the dead. And if we don't preach both of those, then there is no real preaching of the gospel and there is no real glory and worship of God. It's not self-improvement. It's not self-esteem. It's not self-fulfillment. That is not the gospel. Those have become alternatives to the gospel today. But all of those things give glory to man. They all speak of what man can do for himself. And what the scripture teaches us is that we can do nothing for ourselves. We are dependent upon God. But when we trust Him, when we look to Him, he gives us grace to do more than we could ever think, more than we could ever ask, more than we could ever imagine. The other thing that's not listed typically with the five solas is this concept of the priesthood of all believers. Luther felt so strongly about this. So you do understand, just picture this. You're in a church, uh, you go every week because if you don't go, you're going to go to hell. Uh, and if you want to spend less time in purgatory, you better go to church more times than not. And you go to church, and the Mass is taking place, and the Mass is all in Latin, and you can't understand it, and you can't read anything. You don't have a Bible. There's no pew Bibles there for you to open up and read and follow along. So you're just sitting there listening, and you don't know what's being said, but the priest is going to tell you what you need to do. So you go to confession to a priest, and you confess your sins to that priest, and that priest is going to tell you how many Hail Marys to do. He's going to tell you what kind of penance you need to do. He's going to tell you what that's going to cost you in terms of purgatory. You better straighten up. 
this is how the people lived. Luther came to realize, as he read the Bible and read the Scripture, this thing called the priesthood of all believers, that the Bible in Old and New Testament called, God called His people priests. So the key truth, a key truth of the Reformation is the priesthood of all believers. For Luther, the plowboy, the milkmaid, and the pastor were all just as priestly as the other. They had different vocations, but they were all in Christ, and in Christ they were all called a royal priesthood. And each man's own vocation comes from God to be lived out in service to God and for God's glory. So in the Old and in the New Testament, God affirmed the priesthood of believers. Exodus 9, 19.6 And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. God said to Israel, you will be to me a kingdom of priests. They were the priesthood on earth that was to be interceding for the rest of the nations. And instead, they are unfaithful to God. Isaiah 61, 6. But you shall be named the priests of the Lord. They shall call you the servants of our God. You shall eat the riches of the nations. And in their glory you shall boast. God's people have always been called a priesthood by Him. And we come to the New Testament. And Peter writes this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 and verse 9. Verse 5 says, And you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 9, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Peter's writing that to the church. That means to us. So what does this mean? That means I can go directly to the Father. Jesus said, don't ask me anymore. You now go directly to the Father in my name. I don't need a saint. I don't need a relic. I don't need to pay to get there. I don't need Mary to help me get there. Jesus said, you are a priesthood, you now go directly to the Father. We just finished our, our journey through 1 John, and John writes that we are to have confidence when we go to the Father and ask anything of Him. Well, how, how can we be so confident? That seems kind of arrogant and presumptuous, doesn't it? No, not when you understand the truth of Scripture. Not when you understand what Jesus has done for us, and that it's, it's arrogant if I think I'm righteous enough to come to the Father. But it's not arrogant when I realize that I have no righteousness in and of myself. And the only righteousness I can depend on, the, I can trust in, is the righteousness of Jesus. And because of the righteousness of Jesus, I can come to the Father. Because the Father now counts me righteous. I can go to the Father myself and confess my sin. And the Bible commands us to do that. I am the priest who now goes to God on my own behalf, to confess my sin. The Bible says confess your faults to one another. It's true. And there's lots of reasons we don't have time to talk about that we do that. But I want you to understand, you are a royal priesthood. 
And you can now go directly to the throne of grace. And God will hear your prayer. All believers are priests before God through, a great, through our great high priest, Jesus Christ. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. As believers, we have direct access to God through Jesus Christ. There is no necessity for an earthly mediator. The Roman Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox Church's concept of the priesthood is viewed in a misapplication of the Old Testament Aaronic and Levitical priesthood, which was fulfilled in Christ and done away with in the New Covenant. There's a reason God did not allow Jesus to be born through the tribe of Aaron. Jesus was born through the tribe of Judah. Aaron was the priesthood. Jesus comes and he's now called our great high priest. This is one reason Jews don't accept Jesus. How can he be our high priest? He's not even born of the tribe of Judah. Guess what? He was never meant to be because that earthly priesthood had an end. It was finite. And God gave to us in Jesus an eternal priesthood. And now, when we are of Christ, born of Christ, and Christ is our lineage, so to speak, we are ourselves holy priests before God. These foundational principles were the pillars that upheld the Reformation. And they remain the pillars today that uphold our proclamation of the gospel. Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. To God alone be the glory, the priesthood of all believers. These are the core principles. And that's reducing it down, but this is the gospel. And all of these is the fullness of the gospel of Christ. The gospel of the kingdom. And as a result of these principles, the reformers rejected the authority of the Pope, the merit of good works, indulgences, the mediation of Mary and the saints, and all but two of the sacraments instituted by Christ, baptism and the Lord's Supper. They said, those are the only two sacraments that we see Jesus Honoring baptism and the Lord's Supper. Marriage is not a sacrament. Marriage is sacred, but it's not a sacrament. They rejected the doctrine, doctrine of transubstantiation. We believe Christ is present. We're getting ready to come to the table. And when we come to the table, we absolutely believe Christ is present at his table. But he's not present because that bread turns into his body or that cup turns into his blood. He's present because he lives in you. And you live in Him. When we're present at the table, Christ is present because Christ is in us. And when the Bible says Christ is in us, that's not symbolic language. Christ isn't symbolic. Well, He's not really in you, you know. That's just symbolic language. No. And it's not that there's a little Jesus living inside my little heart here. Your heart is not this organ that pumps blood. Your heart is your soul. It's the seed of your, your being. It's the seed of your, your mind, your will, your emotions. It's your affections. It's, it's you. Jesus lives in you by a new birth, by a new creation. Paul writes in Galatians, circumcision, uncircumcision, none of that matters. The only thing that matters is a new creation. 
Because in the new creation, Jesus now lives in you. So the reformers rejected the doctrine of transubstantiation. They rejected the mass as a sacrifice. They rejected purgatory, prayers for the dead, confession to a priest, the use of Latin in services, and all the paraphernalia that expressed these ideas. Today we have other issues, other differences, other grievances. But it's all rooted in the same old thing, which is sin. What Martin Luther and other reformers were protesting was not just a difference in doctrine. It was the sin of departing from the Scripture and God Himself. And it may have looked one way in 1517, but it's the very same problem we have right now in 2021. Today, in much of the church, there is a departure from the Scripture. We have minimized or neutered, if not totally eliminated, the Gospel from our preaching and teaching. We are more concerned with tickling ears than we are pricking hearts. Preaching against sin and talking about hell is forbidden in many pulpits today. Today we see too much of the church that has become too conformed to the world, so conformed that confessing Christians are calling evil good and good evil. Today in many churches, abortion, reliance upon government in place of God, and all manner of sexual immorality has taken hold and found approval and even promotion. We had two local churches at the Gay Pride event out there promoting the lifestyle of homosexuality, telling those people that it was okay for them to be gay. Jesus loves you just the way you are. I mean, not just approving, but promoting evil. The Reformation did not happen because men remained silent and compliant concerning the errors of the church. That's what Rome wanted. They wanted, they wanted Luther to comply. You comply to the demands of the Pope. You comply to the demands of the church. And they used the most extreme forms of intimidation, even execution in the most torturous and horrible ways possible to try to strike fear in the hearts of people. And it worked for centuries. The Reformation happened because men spoke up. They stood up. They took a stand against the sin and error that had come to consume the church. Because they loved God. Because they loved the church. Because they loved God's people. They could not remain silent. For many, it literally cost them their lives. For those who did not lose their lives, they paid a high price to stand for truth in the midst of fiery trials. We are living in a day and a time that requires us to make a choice. To stand for truth or to remain silent. To boldly oppose sin and error that is shaping too many churches and too many people who name the name of Jesus. Or to quietly shrink back to our familiar but, listen, our familiar but falsely secure comfort zones. Well, I'm just going to be quiet. I'm just going to stay in my house and not say anything. Oh, you think you're going to be okay? Remember what Mordecai told Esther? Esther, you're the, queen's, you're the king's wife. You're the queen, true. And you can hide behind that place and position, but don't think that just because you're the queen, when they find out you're a Jew, and they will, don't think your position is going to save you because it won't. 
And Uncle Mordecai said something to Esther that we should pay attention to. Esther, how do you not know that you are not brought into the kingdom for such a time as this? I'm going to tell you what, church, we are living today because this is our time of visitation. We are here for such a time as this. And it's no accident that you're living and seeing and experiencing all the things that are taking place around you. We do, do we convince ourselves that it is not our responsibility? Or do we believe we truly are our brother's keeper? Do we remain silent and complacent? Or do we speak up and stand out to make a difference? God brought a reformation to his church through men who chose to take up their responsibility for the good of their brothers and sisters. Men who refused to remain silent and complacent, but instead spoke up and stood out to make a difference. We know the names of very few of these men. You do realize that, don't you? Luther is one name. Calvin is one name. Knox is one name. Zwingli is one name. We know the names of just a few of these men. But there are countless millions that remain nameless and faceless to us. They are plowboys. They are milkmaids. They are fathers and mothers, butchers and bakers and candlestick makers. They are lowly pastors and simple congregants who took the commands of Christ and his gospel so serious that they gave all to follow Jesus. And they would not remain silent. They are people from every station of life who would not remain silent or complacent. They risk all to speak up and to stand out in the truth. It costs many much on this earth, including their lives. But their reward is beyond imagination in heaven. We may never know their names, but God knows each and every one of them from the least to the greatest, intimately and personally by name. They are His people. They are His children. They are the true heroes of the Reformation. We don't know who they are, but we know they were because here we are today preaching and living biblical truth, standing up for that truth, looking at the world around us and the church around us crumbling under the, lo- the weight of a lie. And so what church are we going to do We are not called to fame. We are called to faithfulness. And may we ever be that for the love of God, for the love of His people, for the love of His church, and for God's glory. Amen? Let us prepare to come to the table. A reminder of what Jesus has done for us, what He has bought and purchased for us, Because we could not for ourselves. If you are trusting Jesus, if you count yourself a member of the body of Christ, part of the covenant people of God, whether you were baptized with Christian baptism as a baby or as an adult, you are welcome to this table. It is the Lord's table. And the Lord has set the parameters for it. So as you trust in Jesus, as you love Jesus, come and welcome to Jesus. Let's all stand. I believe it is safe to say the church needs reformation today. 
The root of all that drives the need for our reformation, past and present, is sin. Because we as God's people have allowed sin to infiltrate and influence our own lives and the church, we find ourselves in need of God's reformation. The church has long suffered now the quiet but constant infiltration of sin through false teaching, through empty philosophies of men promoted through the very institutions meant to train up gospel preachers and teachers. There is a reason why many seminaries are jokingly referred to as cemeteries. Because they're not turning out living, vibrant preachers. They're turning out men who are preaching a dead message to dead people. Instead, we have pastors today who call themselves atheists and are proud of it. Yes, that is real. We have churches and denominations who call good evil and evil good. We have seen the church reduced to what many would believe to be an irrelevant place in our culture. And it has become irrelevant to very many. But those who believe such things do not know who the church truly is, nor do they know the God and the Christ who birthed it and promised that it would never fail to prevail. Christian, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to us. Do not let the condition of the church or of this nation discourage you. Let it motivate you. Let it motivate you to pray, to grow, and to be bold, to speak up, and to stand out for the gospel of Christ and the truth needed to set men free from the bondage of sin and death. God will, be sure of this, God will reform His church. There is no doubt about that. He will heal our land. There is no doubt about that. The only question is what part will you and what part will I play in that reformation and that healing? Will we be quiet spectators trying to preserve what little we have left? Or will we be bold actors engaged in the thick of bringing reformation to the small part of the world we live in every day? I pray that is what you will purpose to do. God has charged us to be bold and to make His gospel known to all. He has charged us just as He charged Joshua. Fear not, for I am with you, says the Lord. Amen. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.